Well, we start a new uh, sermon series today. We've been titling this Umbrella Series, the final countdown for my last nine months of sermons. But within that, we're doing three, four weeks uh, at a time of topicals, uh, sermons. And uh, we start a new one today that asks the question, what price tag for mission success? What's the price tag for mission success? And um, it's a little bit of a heavy topic, so let's uh, ask God for his help before we start. Uh, Father, we love you, and as uh, we've handed out these Bibles to these young people, it's just a reminder, reminder that uh, the Bible itself is not magic, it's not sacred in the sense that we can't put another book on top of it. But what makes it meaningful is that in it you speak. From it you talk to us and you tell us what matters in life and what doesn't matter. You tell us who you are and who you aren't. And you tell us who we are and who we aren't. You, you tell us where to find hope and you tell us where we'll see disaster. And oh, it's so life-giving if we will let it be. And yet, the reality is it says some very hard things. That's the reason that many people don't want to eat at its table, drink from its cup. And so we pray this morning as we begin this uh, series for uh, uh, four weeks that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that we would see the life and the hope and even the delight in the things we talk about, and see the summons in the things that we talk about. And for those who uh, know Christ, Lord, make our hearts vulnerable to what you have to say to us. And for those who don't, we pray, Father, that you would draw them. We understand that there's nothing that we can say that's really smart enough, uh, catchy enough to change a person's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And we pray that he would today. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in 2003, a couple of guys by the name of Mark and Martin decided they were going to start a car company. Well, you need money to do that. And so the early investor was Elon Musk, put in $6.5 million of his own money. He was named chairman of the board and in short order became CEO of the company that we call Tesla. Elon Musk pronounced it Tesla, but he's wrong. Over those uh, four years, from 2004 to 2008, uh, Musk was responsible for raising another, uh, uh, in total, over $100 million for the company. And yet, by the end of 2008, they were this close to bankruptcy. Today, Tesla is worth $631 billion, more than the next closest six car companies combined. What happened? What was the key to their mission success? And they're selling cars all over the place. Electric cars, nobody thought that would ever be a thing that would amount to anything. What was the price tag for mission success? Now, some would make the argument Elon Musk was the key to mission success, and perhaps that's at least partly true. But the bottom line was that the price tag was a lot of money. Lots and lots of money. Musk put in 70 million of his own dollars. Daimler put in 50 million dollars. But the key was in June 2009, the United States government decided to get involved. 
they decided that they were fully invested, invested in getting electric cars to the market. And so they gave Tesla almost half a billion dollars of loans. And that has made all the difference. Making cars costs money. What about the mission of making disciples? Before Jesus left this earth, after he rose from the dead, <clears throat> he gave this commission to Peter, James, and John, and the other 11, and to you, and you, and you, and you, whoever is a follower of Jesus Christ. Go disciple the people groups of the world. And Jesus told his disciples right before he went back to heaven, <clears throat> in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will receive, do you know what it says? He's saying to his disciples, something's going to happen, and you will receive power. Thank you. And you will receive power when the what comes upon you? Holy Spirit. Who? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my what? Witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In other words, there's not a place on the globe that wasn't included in that. You will be. Don't you love the fact that Jesus didn't say, you should be my witnesses. Or you might be my witnesses. Or a couple of you who are really gifted will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. And that's the call upon all of our lives who love Jesus. Now the interesting thing is that Jesus said that the whole world is going to hear the good news. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. <clears throat> this is shortly before Jesus went to the cross. And he said, And the good news about the kingdom, or the gospel about the kingdom, will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations, or all people groups, that's what you should read when you see nations, all people groups, not geographical borders and all the people inside there, but people groups. So they might be in several different nations. They're um, grouped together by language or by cultural distinctives, in many cases religion. All the people groups of the world will hear the gospel and then the end will come. In other words, Jesus is saying something has to happen before I come back. And that something is that the gospel has, has to sweep across the world. Now the problem with that is Today, of the some 8 billion people in the world, almost 8 billion people, there's still somewhere between 2.5 and, and 3 billion, with a B, people who've never heard the gospel even once. Do you know that 86% of the Muslims across the world have never even met one Christian, let alone heard the Christian gospel? You say, how can that be? In a day of internet and radio broadcasts and television broadcasts and podcasts and books, jet travel, how can that possibly be? There are still some countries around the world that control what gets in through the internet for their people. And many of these people who have never heard the gospel lie in those, live in those countries across the 1040 window. So what's going to be the difference between today with three billion still yet to hear, and someday in the future when Jesus comes back, when by then all the people groups of the world have heard the gospel. Not every individual, but representatives of all these people groups, you know, some 17,000 in the world, and 
7,400 of them still have not been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What takes place between now and then? What is the price tag that's going to have to be paid in order for things to be ready for Jesus to come back? And it might surprise you the answer that I give. You might say, we just need to raise a lot of money and send a lot of missionaries. What do we need? Dollars and people. That's true. And I'm a mission guy here, so if you want to give money to mission, I got lots of big plans for the future. But do you, do you really think God needs our money? I mean, do you think that if we don't give X amount of dollars, that God's unable to accomplish his plans? Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers for the harvest are few. Therefore, pray for the Lord of harvest to send out workers into the field. We need people. We have, we have a mission force today, worldwide mission force of 400,000. That doesn't count the indigenous people who are evangelizing among their own villages, towns, and cities. That number's indistinct. And if we had another 400,000, that would be wonderful. And another however many indigenous evangelists, that would be wonderful. But does God absolutely need people? It's a good thing to have money. It's a good thing to have people. But how, by what means, by what price, by what cost is the church of Jesus Christ from around the world going to make the difference ultimately that all the nations hear? And I want to suggest something that's not a lot of fun to think about. Suffering. And if you study the history of the Christian church, you look down through the ages, 2,000 years of history, one of the inescapable things you come across is that our legacy has been one of suffering. There are times that's not the case. And unfortunately, there are times in the history of the Christian church where Christians, professing Christians, were inflicting suffering. But by and large, across the ages, the people of God have been put upon. The people of God have been tortured. The people of God have gone to prison. The people of God have lost their jobs. The people of God have lost their lives. Normal Christian life, the normal Christian life, is one of suffering. One of the things that I've discovered in the years I've been a pastor is about how surprising that is for some Christians when they suffer. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. I was a, a, I pastored in Michigan for two years when I got out of seminary. And uh, it was a very tiny church. There was about 60 people there when we came. But I learned very quickly how unexpected any kind of trials and sufferings tended to be in people's lives. And yet this is what Peter says to Christians, verse 12, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something what were happening to you. What? Strange. 
Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Now we understand that to a large degree these kinds of verses in the New Testament are speaking about trials because you are a Christian. It's not a flat tire, you know, it's not your transmission going out, it's not losing your job. Nevertheless, there is some overlap between those kinds of things and these sorts of trials for being a, a believer. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, Peter is saying, this is normal. You should expect trials. It's the nuts and bolts of being a child of God. Instead, he goes on to say, be very glad for these trials because they make you partners with Christ in his sufferings, sufferings so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you go back to the first century and the, the apostles as they spread out across the then known world, Thomas went to India, others went to um, North Africa, some went to Southern Europe, and every one of the remaining 11 disciples except for John died a martyr. They were killed simply because they loved Jesus and they proclaimed the message about Jesus, the message that this book contains. And if you wanted to be a Christian, you were going to give a lot of thought to that. You were going to be hesitant about that because you knew the cost that came with it. Today, not so much. At least not in the United States. We'll talk more about other places in the coming weeks one of the main reasons that we should anticipate a life of suffering and the New Testament links our suffering with Jesus suffering numerous times was because that Jesus life was a life of suffering the great suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53 that predicts what's going to happen to the Messiah of course this was hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. And the prophet says that he was, verse 3 of Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected. This is speaking about Jesus in the future. He's going to be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He, he was despised and we didn't care. In other words, the very people that should have been interested in him, concerned about him, weren't. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And so it's not surprising that the one we follow, the one who has redeemed us by his blood, that, that we would be marked by suffering trials as well. In fact, the scripture, Jesus said when he was here on earth, if you want to follow me, get prepared. If you want to follow me, buckle up. If you want to follow me, make sure you know what you're getting into. This is the reason, my theory anyway, this is the reason that the American church in general, across this nation, has a, a, a fiber that's weaker than it probably should be. 
I mean, let's think about it. Think about how you share the gospel when you talk with someone about Jesus. When I was a salesman, we were taught that we were to um, tell the customer these wonderful features of this product and then how these features are going to benefit them in life. And isn't that what we tend to do when we talk to people about Jesus? Let me tell you how good it's going to be for you. You get your sins forgiven, you get out of hell, you get to go to heaven, you get a, a new family with the people of God. How awesome it's going to be. And yet listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. You remember the story of the rich young ruler too came to him, to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, just pray a sinner's prayer and you're good to go. It's not what he said, is it? He said, go sell everything you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come follow me. And the guy said, I'm not interested. Not interested in those kind of features and benefits. Jesus says in verse 27 of Luke 14, if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now this is first century AD. Everybody knew cross was execution means in fact to this day it is the most painful way to die that has ever been devised by the human mind and Jesus is saying if you want to follow me you need to be ready to die you need to be ready to suffer in fact Jesus goes on to say and in the very next sentence but don't begin until you count the what cost don't begin till you count the cost if you simply want a life out of hell and a church family to enjoy you haven't counted the whole cost as John Piper said to the uh, cross conference in 2019 thousands of young people from 18 to 25 we didn't urge you to come here to make your life easy we urge you to come here to make your life count. And that's exactly what Jesus says to everyone who contemplates following him. Make sure you count the cost because then you can make your life count. Normal Christian life is one of suffering and it started right out of the gate. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, <clears throat> the earliest Christians suffered. This, this was what they did if they were signing on. There you can track the early first, second, third centuries especially and see these different periods of persecution. Often they were driven by the Roman uh, emperor at the time, but sometimes they were simply local persecutions. And the problems would start right after people became followers of Jesus. Hebrews 10, verse 32. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering? I mean, sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail and when 
When all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. I wouldn't. The writer says, you knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. I mean, think about that. You're exposed to public ridicule. You are beaten. Uh, You help others who are going to prison and the like. Maybe help take care of their children while they're in prison. People take your property, your home, your possessions. Back in the early part of World War I, have you heard of the Armenian Genocide? It was carried out by the Ottoman Turks. The Armenians were Christians, not all, obviously, all professing Christians, not all necessarily possessing, but nonetheless, they were regarded by the Turks as Christians. The Turks were Muslims. And at the beginning of World War I, there were Armenians in the ranks of the Turkish forces. And then they began to pull the Armenian soldiers out, move them to the back uh, rear lines, took their weapons from them, and then they began moving into the Armenian villages, going house to house, moving the people out, sending them on their way, and the neighbors could say, these houses are now mine. And about a million people were sent out into the desert and ultimately perished. I have this house. No, you don't. It's not yours anymore. But well, it is. I have paperwork for it. Doesn't matter. You're no longer a desirable community member. And so I can take your house. And I can take your possessions. And I can take this. And I can take that. And these people looked at that and accepted it with joy. Why? They had an eternal perspective. I can't imagine that. I'm not there yet. And yet the scripture admonishes us over and over. That's exactly what we need. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are temporary residents here. You know, my wife and I, when we were traveling um, last month, we were in all these states. California and Colorado and Wyoming and Utah and Nevada and Kansas. But we're not residents of any of those states. We're just tourists passing through. And that's what Peter says we've got to get a handle on in order for us to view life the way Christ desires that we view life and live life the way Christ desires that we live life and serve Christ the way Christ desires that we serve him. To understand that this world and all of the joys and all of the pleasures that we love, admittedly love, aren't going to last. This city or Let's say this county that we love, this isn't going to last for us. This is a season in our life. We're just tourists here. And the day's coming, brother and sister, when our tourism here ends and now we get home. And are we going to live life as tourists of this kingdom and residents of that? Or are we living life as residents of this kingdom? And it's almost like it's tourism there. 
Why does all of this matter? Because in order for us to reach the nations, there is going to have to be a change in how at least the West thinks about suffering. Next week, we're going to talk about the difference of how the Western churches think about suffering versus, say, the Chinese church, which suffering is part of their curriculum in their churches. And what do we do? You say, well, am I supposed to go looking for suffering? Absolutely not. But participating in mission success and everyone, whether, whether listen, Let's say there's 400 people going to be here today. Now, my dream over the next years is that we see a great movement of the Holy Spirit sending people from our congregation into the world to the unreached people groups, the 7,400 people groups still yet to hear the gospel, and that some people from this congregation are going to be part of going to those places. But to be honest, it's going to be a small fraction of the people here. If it would be 2%, I would be thrilled. What about the rest of us? We're all part of that. Because they cannot accomplish what they're called to do apart from, again, the funds, apart from the intercession. Giving money is not going to solve the problem. If the Holy Spirit's the only one who can change a heart, then writing a check's not going to be the ultimate answer. Intercession. Holding the ropes for those who go. And some of that might mean we make financial sacrifices. Some of that might mean we make time sacrifices. We're getting on our knees and we're crying out for Paul Smith and his wife who are in Madagascar. Papua New Guinea, Pakistan, Vietnam, Philippines. So here's, here's what I want to admonish us today. If we're going to participate in this mission success, we want to change our views on suffering's value. <clears throat> and I think that starts with our own personal, <clears throat> excuse me, our own personal witness in our communities. I mean, if I were to ask you to raise your hand and say, all right, how many of you are afraid to talk to people about Jesus? My guess is that many of us, <laughs> including moi, would put up our hands. It's just kind of the way it is. Timid, we're nervous about it, we're afraid how people... One of the ways that God can begin to chisel away at our fear of suffering is for us just to dive in, blurt out things, and take the risk. Take the risk. Second thing that I think I want to admonish us about is to embrace the suffering that God brings into our lives. If you were here the last number of weeks, we talked about God's sovereignty. God's not kind of out there watching our suffering saying, hey, well, I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't know. No, he's ultimately behind it for our good. And maybe to embrace that suffering as training 
for our faith. We talked about this last Sunday. Let me take you back to the verses that we looked at. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity. Oh, that just doesn't, those two things don't seem to go together, do they? Suffering and I'm like, ah, an opportunity. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. There's that word again, joy. People have their homes taken away from them. Joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So again, go back to the things that are suffering, but they're unconnected with faith. We're not suffering because we're Christians. We're not suffering because we're sharing the gospel. We're suffering because we live in a sinful world. So the car, you know, the car's transmission goes out. Somebody forecloses on the house. We get fired. We go to the doctor and we get a diagnosis we really didn't want to hear. So here's the question. Does my world fall apart for a day or a week or a month or a year? Or can I see that, begin to think differently about it, consider it opportunity for great joy because now my faith is being tested and my endurance has a chance to grow in the midst of that ugliness? Embrace suffering for it will train your faith. If you're following the notes, embrace suffering for it will train your faith. We want to get a view that suffering is normal, makes us more likely to proclaim the gospel. Secondly, we want to embrace suffering for it will train our faith. And third, embrace suffering for it will intensify our fellowship with Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 4, 10. Through suffering... Our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Now, in my Bible, I have a red circle around through suffering, and then I draw an arrow from that down to the line to share in the death of Jesus. To share in the death of Jesus. Jesus was a sufferer. We're called to suffer as well. Count the cost, remember? Luke 14, count the cost. You want to follow me? Make sure you count the cost. I don't know if you follow the news uh, in the Christian world, but in the last two years, there has been an epidemic of people, prominent key leaders and known throughout the country and sometimes throughout the world who are publicly going on Instagram and saying, I'm no longer a Christian. Josh Harris was the, Pastor Josh Harris was the first one back in 2019. He's followed by John Stein, Steingardner, Nelson Hawk, musician, Marty Sampson, Hillsong, music writer, uh, Dr. Paul Maxwell, who's a professor at Moody Bible Institute and also author at Desiring God, on and on. Uh, the, the names, the list of names is long. And they give a lot of different reasons why they say, I'm no longer a Christian, I'm out. Most of them are different from each other. And I may be way off base, but I have this suspicion. That for many of them, especially because they're in the public eye, 
It, it, it just became too unpopular to be a Christian anymore. There's too much pushback with their antiquated views. And as I read yet another count this week, I think I even said out loud, did you count the cost? When you said yes, did anybody tell you there's a cost attached and you need to count it? When I talk to somebody about Jesus, I rarely push. I don't want to be responsible for yet another false conversion. I want them to know what they're getting into. That the legacy of the legacy of the Christian church has been one of suffering. Christian church, I don't mean Keystone Church, I mean the people of God. That's been the legacy. And if you read through the book of uh, through the Bible and get to the book of Revelation and the end comes, you see that that legacy doesn't change. In fact, it only intensifies toward the end. And so if we are to both stand for Jesus and proclaim Jesus, this is what we need to do with suffering. Mm. And I leave you with that thought, both if you're a Christian and if you're not. Have you counted the cost? Are you ready to count the cost? Let's pray. For him who died for us, Father, we give you thanks. For him who went willingly to the cross, we give you thanks. Scorning its shame, and now is seated at your right hand. For him who endured the thorns, the nails, the whip, and the fists, we give you thanks. For the suffering Savior, we give you thanks. And may we in the West not leave it up to our brothers and sisters in hard places around the world to carry the banner of Jesus Christ to the world. But may we be so developed and so trained ourselves in growing fashion of a readiness to suffer for the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are part of the solution and not part of the problem. In Jesus' name, amen.